didn't realize we had so many thespians within the church community. So we're uh, talking about some of the lies of the enemy. We've basically said there's a number of lies that we're told, and we believe them. They're part of our pop culture. There's an enemy out there, as Keith said, who said, uh, rightly so, that there is, is somebody who wants to deceive us. He wants us to believe things that aren't true. And our world uh, tells us that they are, but they're not true. They're lies. And we talked about, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about really the foundational lie. And the foundational lie is this one. You can't trust God's Word, and you really can't believe that He loves you. And probably that's the heart of all the lies, because essentially what He wants you to do, He wants you to, to not trust God. If He can get you not to trust God and not to believe that He loves you, He's really almost won the battle there. A few weeks ago, we talked about God grades on a curve, uh, that a lot of people believe that. They, and if you were to ask people at the mall or at the soccer complex or at one of the many events that are going on this weekend, uh, and you were to say, if you were to die, would you go to be with God in heaven? And they'd say, I hope so. And it, it, why, if God were, God were at the gate of heaven and say, why, why should I let you in? Uh, they would probably get off on a litany of things that they have done for Him. But essentially, somewhere in there they would say, and I'm not great, but I'm not as bad as some others. And it's basically saying, I think God, I hope God, I pray that God grades on a curve. I'm counting on it. Last week we talked about uh, the idea that there are some sins that you can commit that God just will not forgive. There's some unforgivable sins that even God, even in His power and His might, will not forgive. This weekend we want to talk about another sin or another lie that, uh, that uh, the enemy talks about. And he basically, it goes something like this. Sexual purity is for prudes. What's wrong with you anyways? Why would you want to keep yourself sexually pure in this world? Go out and, and, and have some fun. Uh, you know, I was thinking that the two things that I'm probably the most uncomfortable to talk about with you or with anyone else, but specifically, is money and sex. So I'm not going to talk about money tonight. So take a guess on what I'm going to talk about. All right. We're going to go to the text, the Word of God, Second Samuel chapter 11, page 242 in your chair Bible. I'd love you to follow along in some sort of a Bible because I want you to know this is coming from God's Word. And uh, I want you to hear it. I want you to see it. Because what, I'll, what you'll find is as you go through it, and as I read through it, some things will pop out to me. Other things will pop out to you. And it may be that God will speak to you through the passage in maybe a different way, a little different way. Maybe there's a, it's almost tailor-made that you'll get the message. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, I just want to read the first five verses. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army uh, and had a seed and laid siege on the city of Reba. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, 
put in the, put into their nap. Um, David got out of bed and was walking on the road or uh, on the roof of the palace. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, uh, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I always find that, I still, to this very day, I still find it ironic that her name is Bathsheba, and she's taking a bath, and that's essentially the first thing that we hear about. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstruation period, and then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Here's the first thing that I want you to see here from this passage, the principle, is what you do in those free moments of your life can really set its course. Have you found that? You know, I think one of the dangers in our lives is when we have those free moments, periods of time where we really don't have structure, we, don't, we really don't have a plan. You may be in a faraway city. You may be uh, alone. But there's that moment where you can do something that could really set the course of your life. Now, up to this point, David had been a great leader for the nation of Israel. He was a good king. But instead of going out to wars, and the text makes it very clear that this David should have been out on the battlefield. This was the time when kings went out to war. But the point is, David's not going out to war. He's laying on a bed, taking a nap. He stayed behind, and he had too much time. He sees Bathsheba, and he over-desires her. He thought, I must have her, and he did. Now, she's another man's wife. She, he sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. What will he do? What will he do? What will he do? That's the question. Maybe David thought, and who knows what he thought, but maybe he thought, you know, I work hard. I've been a good king. I deserve to be happy. No one will know. So he tries to hide his sin. He sends for the husband, Uriah, who is on the battlefield, and fighting for the nation of Israel. And by the way, he's one of David's mighty men. And one of you would basically uh, see Uriah as being one of the ones that, that were the closest to David. The, one of the, the most trusted men that David had. And so he sends for Uriah. Hoping that Uriah would come home. And uh, he would... Uh, sleep with his wife, Bathsheba. And everyone would think that David's child is Uriah's. But David is dealing with a man who is more honorable than he. Notice what Uriah says, verse 11. Because David basically says, why don't you go and spend some time with your wife? While you're here, just go ahead and, and do that. You've got a little bit of time, go ahead and do that. Uriah replied, the ark. Now, the ark isn't talking about Noah's ark here. It's talking about the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant was a box that was placed in the Holy of Holies, in the, in the tabernacle, in the, the uh, 
basically was in a, a special area, and it, it represented the very presence of God. The very presence of God. So the ark and the armies of Israel uh, and Judah are living in tents. And Jacob and uh, Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I will never do such a thing. He was a very honorable man. And he's basically said, until the battle's over, until the troops are home, until the ark of the covenant is back, we're not, I'm not go- going to do that. So David realizes through a couple of attempts at this that this isn't going to work. So he concocts another plan. And his plan gets even more devious and dark. He has Uriah deliver some orders to his commander, Joab, to arrange for his own death. So get the, the, the irony here. Here he is, a faithful warrior, taking the, the commands from the king to Joab, sealed, of course, with the signet ring of the king. And he takes the orders to Joab. Joab opens the orders up and realizes what's going on. And what is in the orders that, that, that uh, Uriah takes to commander Joab? The orders from the king are simply this. Send Send Uriah to the front lines to where all the heavy fighting is. And then once the fighting gets really heavy and really intense, pull the troops back, but don't tell Uriah. And Joab must have known that something was up. Probably didn't know the details. Probably when he came back, he understood what was going on. But at that point, he didn't really understand why, but he knew that David was essentially saying, this guy needs to die. And you're going to help. So the battle gets hard. Uriah is in the front lines. They pull back. And Uriah is killed. And not only is Uriah killed, but a number of good soldiers, good men are, are killed because of this. Now, the sin began with David just going out and lusting after a woman. Now it's turned into sleeping with a woman. Now it's turned into murder of one of his most trusted men. We see the result here. Second Samuel 11, verse 26. When Uriah's wife, that's Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. She gave birth to a son. Now, let's just stop there. There's a few things going on. I don't have time to get into all of it. Number one, what role did Bathsheba play? I don't know, and that's really not what I want to talk about, so I get not to talk about that. Whether you care, you can go and search that, but I'm not going to address it tonight. The other thing is, notice, and you, you may have missed this because I read it, and you may have just, it just maybe just slipped your attention, but it says that she became one of his wives. He was already married. So was she. But the last line of that is just so powerful. Verse 27, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. 
Have you done this? And I think I've talked about this before as you're reading through the Old Testament. You'll read through it and you'll see something. And it's really describing because the historical books like Genesis, Exodus and Numbers and uh, other books like that, Joshua and Judges, are really kind of historical books. They're describing history. They're not giving they're, they're not trying to make commentary generally they don't aren't aren't making ethical comments about the behavior and what's taking place in the book i mean you wish they were (laughs) there are times where you go wait a minute wait a minute this this he shouldn't be doing this right this is wrong and and you want that statement where uh but the lord was displeased and it never comes but it does here it does here This is one of the very few times where in the historical narrative of the Old Testament, it says specifically, God was upset with this. David seemingly, seemingly got away with his sin, but he didn't. He didn't get away with it. God knew. And, um, I think this last phrase is so powerful. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Let's talk about our culture for a minute. Our culture has very different views of sex. And I'm not going to be real graphic. I'm going to just try to be real basic about this. But there's a number of different views. The, The first view that is very common in our culture is... Sex is just a basic biological drive that we need to be careful and responsible because there are negative consequences. We just need to be careful. And that's generally the view that's taught in our public schools today. The second view is, and this is common in our culture, is sex is a necessary evil for the propagation of the the human race, that spiritual people refrain from sex except for having children. Sexual sexual pleasure is not to be pursued. So it's it's kind of it's for a purpose, but uh, it's not to be enjoyed, not to be uh, to be pursued. The third view that's common, and these are all kind of threads in our culture. The third view is that sex is a way to a way of self-expression. It's a way to be yourself and find yourself. And many in this group believe that society has still stifled creativity and sex is one way to express ourselves any way we desire. And we went through the 60s and the 70s where a lot of that was going on and the sexual revolution and all of that. And um, that flies in the face of the Christian view of sex. What does the Bible say? And I don't have time to go into all of it, but let me give you some of the highlights of what the Bible says about sex. The Bible teaches that sex is very good. Genesis 1.31, God said all that he saw all that he made, and he said that it was very good. It wasn't just good, it was very good. The book of the if you read the book of Song of Solomon, you'll blush. Uh, it is unbashedly rejoicing in sexual expression between a husband and a wife. That's really what it is, 
when you read through it. And scholars have gone, oh, it's speaking symbolically about Christ and the church and all is, you know, Christ in, the, in Israel. No, it's talking about a relationship between a husband and a wife. <laughs> the Bible teaches, though, that our sexual desires are broken and they're not a safe guide. We're told by the Apostle Paul that we're to flee our lusts in 1 Corinthians 6.18. The Bible also teaches that love and sex are not primarily for individual happiness. And I think that's where our culture really gets off track. They believe that sex and uh, the, the idea that sex is for individual hap- happiness and love is for individual happiness. It's all about me. God intended sex between a husband and a wife to be the ultimate personal union. It is to be a physical, emotional, and spiritual event. The two becoming one flesh. It's the ultimate of sharing lives. This one flesh union is a covenant between a husband and a wife, never to be broken or shared with others. That's what God intended for sex. The Bible teaches that sexual purity or chastity is a powerful demonstration that we belong to someone else, a Savior and Lord, that we are not of this world, that our sexual restraint shows the world that we belong to Him and we remain faithful to Him. The Bible teaches that God designed sex for a loving, exclusive, permanent, legal, and committed relationship between a husband and a wife. That's what the Bible says about sex. And it flies in the face of our culture and the teachings of our culture. But I go back to that statement that God made about David. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Now in our culture they would say, well the murder part was a little too far. But up to that point, frankly, no big deal. Does God have a right to be displeased though? We live in a culture that basically says to us, you're free to have sex with whomever you want, whenever you want, and however you choose. You may or may not have boundaries. Probably the most common boundary that people would give today is they would say, well, just don't hurt anyone else. Go ahead, but just don't hurt anyone else. But here's the problem with that. I'm pretty sure, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure that David didn't intend to hurt anyone. I'm also pretty sure that David never dreamed that he would actually plan for the murder of one of his most trusted men, Uriah, one of his mighty men. I don't think he started out with that plan at all. But here's what I found, and maybe you found it too. When, When a small sin begins to unravel and you try to cover it up, it starts to really begin to unravel in a big way. And it gets out of hand very quickly. And you look back and you go, how did that happen? It always starts small. Our modern pop culture sees the biblical commands for purity and restraint in the area of sex as antiquated. Uh, They say we're living in a new day with new rules. We don't need to follow the old Victorian rules. People who live pure lives 
and, and, and when I say pure lives, I mean that they don't have sex outside of marriage and they don't have sex before marriage. They're, they're told by the culture, if you really believe in it, why would a God, why would God hold you to that standard? Uh, because God, I believe God wants me to enjoy life. So why would God hold you to that standard? That's harsh. That's outdated. That's antiquated. They would say something like, your God doesn't really want you to enjoy the best things in life. You're missing out. You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like what, what the serpent said to Adam and Eve in the garden when he said, did God really say that? He knows that if you take a bite of this fruit, you're really, your eyes are going to be open. He's holding back the best from you. And our culture basically believes that. Here's what I found. As I said before, the enemy doesn't like it when I speak on topics like this. And the way he does it, he makes me very uncomfortable about talking about it. But I'll tell you what. Money and sex are hard for me to talk about. And I think the reason is, is because money and sex are two of the most powerful forces competing for our souls. They both can exercise extremely powerful control over your life. The desire for money, the desire for sex can rock your life, can direct your life. Here's a second principle. God is not a killjoy. He often says no to protect us. He wants to protect us. Just like you do as a parent when you say to your child, no. Some of you need to say no more to your child to protect your child. But that's what a good parent does. Here's a couple of the various lies that the enemy throws out there in the area of sex, okay? Sex is a private and personal thing. It only affects me. Well, it affects you and someone else. But it always affects others. See, that was David's mistake. David thought that it will it only affect me. It's only it's my life. It's it's my my right to do this. It affected a lot of people, not just David. And by the way, after this event with Bathsheba, David's life, it goes downhill quickly. He has, he has a son that wants to sleep with his daughter. He has another son that basically gets really upset with his father because his father doesn't do anything about it when, he, when the one son rapes the daughter. And so David doesn't. He stands back very passively. So the other son basically uh, rebels against the father and, and at one point almost tries to take the kingdom away. I mean, the wheels really come off and it all goes back to this moment in David's life. So sex is not a private and personal thing. Oftentimes, that's a lie. The enemy wants you to believe that. It's, it's isolated. It's private. It's personal. It won't affect anyone else. It will. And it does. 
Secondly, having sex early in life will turn a boy into a man. I am absolutely so sick of seeing this in every spring movie that comes out where the kids go on spring break and they go somewhere and they lose their virginity and that's the, the, the thing of the movie and it's celebrated and it's laughed at and I just want to say that's an absolute terrible thing for a young boy to feel like I'll become a man when I do that. The other side of that lie is when a man or a boy comes to a girl and he says, I love you, now sleep with me. And the girl believes it. Can I just say to the young women and the older women here today, men, boys are liars. They don't love you when they say that. Men and boys that love you will not ask you to do that. They ever ask you to do that, they don't love you. Here's another lie. Remaining celibate, living pure until marriage is silly, naive, and outdated. It may be outdated in our pop culture, but there's a word in Scripture. We used to call it fornication. It's, it doesn't mean anything to us today, but the word... The Greek word is pornea. Obviously, we get our word pornography from it. And essentially, pornea means any kind of sex outside of marriage. Any kind of sex outside of marriage is pornea. Whether it's sex before marriage, doesn't matter. Sex while you're married to someone else, with someone else, doesn't matter. Any kind of sex outside of a marriage, committed marriage relationship is pornea. And God's Word still says that's a sin. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that we're concerned about a certain kind of sexual behavior in our culture, but we're giving passes to, to young people who are just saying, I'm just going to sleep around. I'm going to sleep with this person and not say that that's pornea too. It is. One of the things I say to every couple that's getting married is I say, if you're sleeping together, if you have slept together, don't stop. Because you're making a mockery out of the wedding if you're doing that. Sex before marriage is common sense and not a sin. I just went through that pornea. Some people say, well, I can't live a full life unless I have sex. I would just say probably the greatest example of somebody who lived the fullest life ever on this earth was Jesus. As far as I know, according to Scripture, he never had sex. And I think he did okay. It's a lie from the pit. One of the most powerful ways to demonstrate his kingdom has come to earth and is now here that is, is when his covenant community, his bride, his church, we live sexually pure lives in a world that, does, that doesn't and mocks anyone who does. And that's how we, you know, you say, well, how can we make a difference? How can we show people we're different? Simply this, live a pure life. Live a sexually pure life. Because no one around us is anymore. Including Christians. This would make a big difference. The world looks at us and says, 
you're, you're really no different than we are. You, 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 you're hypocrites. You, you say one thing and do another. You say that you uh, uh, love God, but don't really see any evidence of it. And you're, you're, you're ashamed of God. You're ashamed to stand up and say, you know, I'm pure and I'm, I'm, ho- I'm saving myself for my future partner. And they mock you when you say, oh, I don't want to be mocked, so I don't want to say it. I want to hold it up. And, I don't... and listen, I'm not saying you get up and, with a megaphone and, and announce it. But there is a point where you, when the world realizes that we, we march to the beat of a different drummer. We belong to a different kingdom. We have a different Lord. We don't go with the flow. We go upstream when we have to. And this is one of those times where when you go upstream, you're going to feel current against you and it's not going to be nice and it's not going to be easy. Living our lives for Him will affect how we view sex. When the world sees us putting sex into its proper God-given place, when the world sees us finding all that we need in Jesus, unconditional love and acceptance, when the world sees us remaining faithful to our marriage partner for life, when the world sees us believing the ultimate human experience is not sex, but being with God in heaven forever and joyfully anticipating that event, they will stop and they will take notice. Because for the first time, the world will see people, maybe not for the first time, but maybe for the first time in a long time, the world will begin to see somebody who says, I'm loved and accepted, and I know there's a greater thing than sex waiting for me. And I'm willing to wait. And I'm willing to work within the boundaries that God has set, not because He's a killjoy, but because He's protecting me. What if, as Christians, instead of pursuing personal satisfaction, we made it our goal for personal sanctification. I think that's where the wheels really come off with us. We're really worried more about our own personal satisfaction than we are becoming more like Jesus. Frankly, if you want to become more like Jesus, one of the great areas that you could work on, every one of us can work on, is this area. Because there's a liar out there and he's lying his head off. And just watch a movie. Just see the themes. And Listen, these aren't new. These have been going on for 50 years. These movies have been going on for 50 years. And they're the same stupid theme over and over again. Will we believe the lie? Or will we say, you know what? I... I, I I think I'm going to put my weight here. I think David, if he could give us an audience today, would say, I never dreamed that event at that moment in my life would so derail everything. But it did. And it still does. Sex is something to be enjoyed. It's something that is good but it can be perverted and it can kill and destroy and the enemy wants you to abuse it the way the world is. May we be the people that are pure, 
that are righteous, that pursue personal sanctification over everything else. And then the world may see something different. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And so, Father, Your Word gives us very clear instruction here. The world looks at it and laughs, mocks it, makes fun of it, belittles it. But there is damage that's being done in so many families and so many lives because young people and middle-aged people and older people are falling for the lies of the enemy. And what might start out as a little, little sin unravels into something much bigger and much more deadly. I pray, Father, that we as Christians would live our lives in such a way that people will see there is a reason for how, why we live pure lives. Because we belong to another Master. And He's not a liar. He came and gave His life for us. And we would do anything for Him. Because He did everything for us. We thank You in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.